Hello, good evening, and welcome to A Reason for Hope. We're glad you're joining us. A Reason for Hope is our live broadcast dedicated and guided by your questions on God's Word, the Bible. That's right, it's your questions that guide our time as they come in on our various live platforms. So we're very glad that you are joining us and finding us here, wherever you are in in the world, indeed. Um, So welcome, welcome to A Reason for Hope. My name is Dave Robson. I will be fielding those questions as they come on in, jumping from one platform to another, like Spider-Man, and uh, (laughs) hopefully first come, first serve basis. And with me today, with us today, is uh, Pastor Sean Richards. How are you doing? Good. The frog is doing fine as well. The frog is, that's good. I've been thinking about that all day since last time you mentioned the frog. I haven't mentioned him to you, if that's anything to note. (laughs) Well, I've been thinking about it anyway. (laughs) It's good to see you. I'm lost on the frog. Yeah, me too. I'm (laughs) lost too. I'm always lost. Uh, Pastor Scott as well, who's the senior pastor here at Calvary Christian Fellowship, where we're broadcasting from. How are you doing? I am doing fantastic. Can't wait to get to the questions. I know. It's good to see you. Good to have you. Good to have you here. Well, there are various ways that you can uh, join us. Uh, A Reason for Hope is a ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, so keep that in mind as you're trying to find us. Like I said, we are we are here live Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, so whatever that time is for you around the world. And we're excited to have people, I know, from Africa, from England, Australia, all over the place. Um, very exciting indeed, so welcome. Again, if you go to our website, Calvary Christian Fellowship, go to the um, Watch Live tab, which is right here, and that will take you to our live page. Now here you'll find a countdown to our next live show, not only Reason for Hope, but our regular services we have here at Calvary Christian Fellowship, Wednesday evenings and Sunday mornings. You'll see the schedule there as well. But if we are live, you will see us live and there'll be a chat box, chat function. You can sign up with a name and then interact with us there. And again, I will be watching that as we go along on our show today. That direct link is ccftucson.online.church, but you can just follow that link from calvarychristianfellowship.com. It's probably the easier way to go about it. On Facebook, again, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson or facebook.com slash Tucson. You will find us there. Just refresh your page and you'll see the live show pop up when we are live. And of course, chat box there as well where you can interact with us. Um, if you go to your app store, mobile app, or even on Roku and Apple TV, search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, you'll find that we have an app that you can watch us on your iPad or iPhone or Android device. Or again, as I mentioned, Roku, Apple TV, should you want to put us on your big screen and gather the pets and children around and enjoy the show (laughs) that way, (laughs) who wouldn't want to do that? On YouTube, our channel is A Reason for Hope. So if you're wanting to join us on YouTube, A Reason for Hope is the name of the channel or youtube.com slash at A Reason for Hope 546. But you don't need to know that. Just search in the uh, search bar and it will pop right up. You'll see the picture of uh, Scott and Sean there in, uh, in Israel. Uh, you can follow uh, Pastor Scott here on Twitter. His handle is uh, Scott R4H. That's Scott, letter four, num- number, letter, letter R, number four, <laughs> number. letter H, or what it says on your screen. Don't trust me. And he posts uh, highlights from the show, but also prophecy updates and commentary on world events and that kind of thing, which is very interesting and a great kind of source of news from a biblical perspective as well. So follow along with Scott there. And last but not least, our email address is questions for hope at gmail.com. That's questions for hope spelled out at gmail.com. You can email us there anytime and we get to those questions as well. So we appreciate you using that. If you're listening to us on Reach Radio, you are listening to our last show pre-recorded. So you are sort of a day behind, so to speak. Um, But use that email address and we'll get to those questions on our next show. 
and do consider joining us on one of our live platforms when you're not on your drive time or when you'd like to join us as live as can be. Well, That's having said with, all that, with all that being said, <laughs> who'd like to pray today? I know it's a big ask. I haven't had the chance yet. I'd like to. Let's do it. That'd be great. Now, thank you that we have the chance to be in your word today. And as it's going to be shared and continued to be, we ask that it would all be done through your spirit and for your glory and good pleasure. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Sean. Uh, well, we have some some leftover questions from last night that I put in a Tupperware in the fridge and uh, pulled them out just before the show. Uh, one here from, <laughs> and I'm hilarious, aren't I? Yep. Uh, one from Taylor here. Um, he asked that he he shared a video that he had seen that claims that when we have sexual intercourse, we become one, and therefore we can share demonic oppression uh, such as depression. That can be transferred or shared between the man and the woman. Is there any biblical credence to this? Is there a spiritual connection that happens with sexual intercourse? So what happens well, in the spiritual a, realm? There's a few Bible verses that would probably lead to that train of thought, but there's also a lot of bad assumptions being made in the midst of it. Uh, the kind of camp that you're coming from, what are called deliverance ministries, are those that would essentially dismiss the whole idea of spiritual growth and personal accountability and fall back on the old adage, the devil made me do it. Uh, that is an unbiblical idea, and of course, when it comes to that being your assumption and approach to Scripture, it's going to muddy the waters on even very plain statements. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is making an exhortation to the church of Corinth, saying that whoever, notice this, goes with a prostitute becomes one spirit with her, and why would you make members of Christ that members of a harlot? Now, at face value, that is, of course, saying that our physical relationships do matter and that you want to make sure that you're honoring God in your body. That was the punchline of the whole chapter. But people who will take this assumption and saying, well, any sin is really the activity of the devil, not of me. And if I'm being sexually tempted, that's, of course, a uh, sexual demon, I suppose, would be the case, and the assumptions carry you down into this uh, sexually transmitted demon, if you will, the, a new coin of phrase on STDs. So when we're asking the question, as it's written, we need to deal with two faulty assumptions. First of all, is there a spiritual union in sex, or is that not the point? And of course, is there spiritual accountability, or is it all a result of possession? Yeah, well, uh, again, you know, Jesus in Matthew chapter 19 uh, said that uh, defining what marriage was all about, it says, have you not read that at the beginning he made the male and female, and for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. You know, I, I just think the uh, clarifying point in all of that is that uh, as far as the oneness in the sexual union, God is the one who joins them together. If a person is spiritually dead, um, you can have sexual relations with them as often as you want, and it's not going to have any kind of a spiritual impact. Uh, obviously, it's not going to be something that you would want to do yourself uh, for other reasons, primarily moral reasons, but spiritually, that one flesh relationship is something that is a direct blessing from God. And, and so, uh, you know, Paul warns about the idea of joining oneself to a prostitute and the uh, in the deleterious effects that take place there. But to say that uh, there is some 
spiritual condition that we have in our hearts that can be transferred in the sexual act, uh, you know, I think, Sean, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, the reason uh, that we have spiritual problems is because spiritually each of us are uh, alienated from God. Uh, as much as I would love to have my relationship with God sort of uh, bleed over and be able to help other people, uh, the old saying is true. God has no grandchildren. He has no uh, friends of friends. He only has his own children. And so that individual relationship with God, I think, clarifies that notion. Uh, if a person is uh, having sexual relations with a person who is demon-possessed, I think there's a whole host of other issues they have to deal with. A series without, of questions uh, as to why yeah. and hows and whens. <laughs> exactly. Uh, there, you know, again, I, I think the idea that somehow you're going to catch a particular spiritual defect or malady or a sense of depression or mental illness like people catch a cold, um, certainly not something the Bible ever teaches. Not at all. And of course, we would solidify that in the proof text of 1 John chapter 5, where it notes point blank, greater is he that is in you than he was in the First world. 1 John 4.4. 4, 4, yeah. 4. Yeah. And what's important in noting that is it's describing a note of contrast between the one who knows God and the one who doesn't. It's not describing just in general salvific terms. It's describing your spiritual standing, not just before God, but with him. Right. on an ongoing relationship, and then goes on to make a note of contrast about Cain and how his behavior ultimately reflected, his decisions ultimately reflected him not being of the righteous one, but the wicked one, and that was manifested through murder. Now, when we ask the question, oh, was Cain possessed? Notice how your assumptions are coloring your reading. If we take at face value the truth statements made in Scripture that when someone makes a spiritual mistake, they made a spiritual mistake. That when someone is affected in any spiritual sense or made a target, for example, the book of Job, it never mentions Satan entering Job. And that is a foundational fact if you're going to put forth this kind of doctrine. We think that it's detrimental to the body of Christ because it ultimately distances us, excuse me, distances us from fellowship with his spirit. And the reason why I say that is because, not that they don't claim the Holy Spirit to come into them all the time, but they deny his power. Right. And that's an intentional in my phrasing. They have a form of godliness, but denying his power. The idea that God can't make an impact or overcome the wicked one in my life, or my own wickedness for that matter, because A, the assumption I'm not, nor can be wicked. The devil has to be the one to affect those behaviors. Also, God is not able to stop the enemy as demonstrated through my life. All of these assumptions are false and antichrist, and we need to make sure that when we make any assumptions about our spiritual or physical relationships, Jesus is at the center of it. Does this glorify Christ? Does this demonstrate his power? Does this, and yes, I am speaking in sexuality terms, reflect how he would behave were he given this kind of ministry? Yeah, and the point I, being made is that. Yeah, you know, I, I think uh, we could sum up uh, by saying that sin or mental illness is not a sexually transmitted disease. Right. It's not an STD. <laughs> yeah. I think we can pretty much determine that. But mm -hmm. there's another passage that I think we need to pay attention to uh, that, that is sort of the broad picture of all of this uh, as far as, uh, you know, deliverance ministries or someone in your past uh, was involved with the occult or was involved in a particular area of sin and are there generational curses? Uh, you know, Ezekiel chapter 18, 
I think, pretty much refutes this uh, as strongly as possible. Uh, There we read, the word of the Lord came to me again, saying, what do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge? As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. But if man is just and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live, says the Lord. So each of us are uh, moral agents. We're spiritual agents. We are given that agency by God to say yes or no to a relationship with him. Now, can our families of origin give us say, some bad examples that maybe we imprinted on when we were young, we just considered that normal behavior? Well, certainly. Uh, You know, if you were raised in an alcoholic home, uh, you might pretty much jive right along with the idea of saying, well, uh, you know, excessive consumption of alcohol is normal. My family's normal. We do this normally. Therefore, I'm going to be, you know, knocking back whiskeys every night after work. You know, you just learn by observation. Mm -hmm. But understand, that's all external. That's not spiritual. That's not internal. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and so to say that somehow in uh, our DNA, because someone was involved with that, or because some familiar spirit, you will often hear this sort of thing talked about, and people have these, oh, but I've experienced it, uh, kind of testimonies. Mm -hmm. Some kind of familiar spirit uh, grabbed on to your great-grandma when she was at Madame Lasagna's fortune-telling room. Um, and uh, is following you around now. Well, you know, this is the stuff of sci-fi movies and horror films, but certainly we see nothing in the scripture that even suggests it. Mm. So, Madame Lasagna fortune. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. That yeah. Hit me different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Write that one down. Yeah. Great. Well, Taylor, thanks for being a regular on the show and for that question. Great question, indeed. A uh, question from Mac D. What did Jesus write in the dirt when the woman was caught in adultery? Well, at the beginning of John chapter 8, and that section of Scripture is given a lot of, uh, I guess, more attention than it deserves and not the positive kind. Feel free to ask about that on a later date. But the incident is one that people wonder if it happened to begin with because some of the early manuscripts actually put it in the Gospel of Luke as opposed to the Gospel of John. And it's, again, a spirit of a lot of controversy because even our earliest references to it thought it was giving permission for people to commit adultery. But that's just inside. When we're talking about the incident, let me just walk you through it so that you understand the narrative and then you might notice this is a fulfillment of something. Uh, Jesus was in a situation where he was in the middle of teaching and the Pharisees, quite characteristically, tried to interrupt him with something that would affect his PR negatively. Right. He was in a situation where, of course, he would either have to choose between upholding the law of Moses or emphasizing the heart of God that he had been demonstrating for the last three and a half years. And what's interesting is that at the very end of his earthly ministry, they put him in this dilemma. They say, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now the law says to stone her, what do you say? I always and, wonder how they caught her in the very act. Yeah, and where's the guy? <laughs> yeah, that right. says exactly. what suggests yeah, a lot, to us. A lot of, uh, uh, you know, I just have one problem here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this yeah. was what suggests this was a setup on their part. But the point being made is Jesus doesn't play their game. He ultimately ignores them, and he starts writing in the dirt. Thus is the question. Now, we aren't told what he wrote in the dirt. That's the first answer to your question. But the significance of why he was doing it 
is shown when they started reacting to it. He pretends as if he doesn't hear them. He continues to write in the dirt. And then, starting from the oldest to the youngest, that's significant, he suddenly finds himself alone with the woman. Everyone apparently decided to leave all of a sudden. And what's interesting is not only in the order of their dispersion, but also the audience of that dispersion was people accusing this woman of a legitimate sin. Jesus acknowledges it in the text, go and sin no more. Right. But it was also interesting when Jesus is putting this last week of his earthly ministry on the table, showcasing himself as the Passover lamb, whereas we're told in Exodus that he would be shown to be without defect or flaw. That sort of examination was on purpose, and the showcasing of Jesus' perfect nature, emphasizing justice but also showing mercy, that the fact her sins would be dealt with but also are fully known, are on the table here. This isn't inconsistent with the passage. Then the question asks, why did he? Not what did he, we aren't told that. Why did he write in the dirt? And it was essentially to do what the Passover lamb was meant to do, to put a line between those who are taking advantage of God's promises and those who are rejecting them. The reason for that is because in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 17 and verse 13, those who reject God are being told point blank that they would not only be forsaken by the Lord, but would have their sins. What? Yeah, it says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Which is exactly what the Pharisees were doing, not just in trying to put him at odds with the public, but also to put them at odds with God's law, despite being the embodiment of the word itself. So the situation is we aren't told what he wrote. We can infer, and I'm sure you've heard plenty of Bible teachers say this, and they would be right in doing so, probably names, dates, uh, not changed to protect the innocent or not so innocent innocent in this case. (laughs) And of course, laying out their sins bare in front of them. In the context, they're accusing this woman of her sin, that being exposed. Jesus starts writing in the dirt, exposing their sins. Now note, am I going to say that dogmatically? No, but there is scriptural precedent to what Jesus is doing, the audience to which he was doing it to, and the situation in which it was being done. So we know the who, the what, the why, and the how, we just don't know specifically what he was writing. We just know what he was doing and the significance of it. So I can answer every part of that question but what you asked, which I apologize for, but we (laughs) got to stick to the text. Yeah, the only other thing I'd throw in there and uh, kind of dovetails into why this was happening in the narrative of the Gospel of John, when it shows up, some people will question whether this belongs in John or Luke or or something like this. Mm -hmm. I just think it's fascinating that that Jeremiah passage in Jeremiah 17 talks about forsaking me, the fountain of living waters. Well, what has Jesus just declared in John chapter 7 and verse 37? If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Mm. For the one who believes in me out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So definitely a Jeremiah-y-like reference going on there. Mm. And here we see that reference to Jesus fulfilling Jeremiah 17 illustrated very powerfully in uh, John chapter 8. Mm. Right up, right, uh, falling on the heels. Yeah. So, yeah. Great. Yeah. Well, MacD, thank you for that question. Great question. I hope that helps you out. Uh, I've got lots of questions coming in. This is very exciting. I've been typing away over here, getting them all lined up for you guys. Uh, question from Taylor, and this is a profound question. Simple but profound. You guys ready for this? Oh, yeah. 
How do you know you're right with God? Well, the simple answer is, does he have terms and do you meet those terms? Mm. But if you have a God who's very, uh, let's say, holy, and you're not, well, then we're in trouble. But fortunately, the God of Israel, the God who's revealed himself in history, has made his terms a lot simpler than just that. Yeah. yeah. It's really, yeah. The, it's the basis of, I mean, every religion, and I think it's safe to say, yeah. is trying to be right with God, right? Yeah. Or trying to at least go to the right place when you die. I and, mean, and, and I guess there's a nuance, I guess, to that question, yeah. uh, right with God. Um, if you're on the outside looking in, at a relationship with God, then obviously you need to understand the gospel, the good yep. news that Jesus Christ died on a cruel Roman cross and rose from the dead in a moment of history so that we could know beyond a shadow of a doubt that our sins were forgiven and that uh, by believing in the words of Jesus, we can have eternal life. Uh, we put our faith and our trust in him. Uh, he is going to forgive us. Uh, we, Jesus went so far as to say the one who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and he shall not pass into judgment, but is passed from death into life. Uh, a person on the outside looking in at a relationship with God simply needs to call on the name of the Lord. Uh, they need to get saved in that way. The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, Romans chapter 10 and verse 17 shall be saved. So we do that through prayer. We say, Lord, I, I know I need you. I know I need your forgiveness. I know I need you in my life. Please forgive me. Come into my life. Make me a brand new person. I receive you as my Lord and Savior today. Uh, or words to that effect. It's not the prayer that saves anyone. It's the attitude of the heart. So that's on the outside looking in. But when that question gets raised more often than not, I, I find it uh, being asked by Christians who wonder, well, okay, yeah, I've received Jesus as my Savior, but how do I know that I'm right with him? Mm. How do I know that I'm really saved? And um, I think there's a pretty simple and direct answer to that uh you know the first thing that we need to ask ourselves is this um have i availed myself of the promises of god the bible says but to as many as received him to them he gave the right to become children of god to those who believe in his name ask yourself this simple question have i received jesus as my personal savior jesus said behold i stand at the door and knock if any man hears my voice and opens the door i will come into him and dine with him and he with me you open the door of your life to Jesus, if you invited him as your savior. If you have, God makes that promise that whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Mm -hmm. uh, so first thing, have we taken God up on his promise? Uh, the second thing we need to understand is, do we have the personal assurance that God wants to give us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that we belong to him? Uh, Romans chapter eight and verse 15 says, we have not received the spirit of fear uh, leading to condemnation, but we've received, this, received the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the, the children of God. So there is that, you know that you know that you know, that ministry of the Holy Spirit that mm -hmm. bears witness that we have been adopted into the presence of God. It's a subjective thing. Sometimes our emotions or our circumstances can really create some static on that line. Mm -hmm. But we have to ask ourselves that question. Do we have that, that inner witness of the Holy Spirit? And thirdly, do we see uh, not perfection in our walk with God, but progression in our walk with God. Uh, in uh, the book of 2 Peter, chapter 1, uh, Peter talks about adding to your faith virtue, to virtue, diligence, to diligence, brotherly love, brother, brotherly kindness, and brotherly kindness, love. These things are yours and abound. You'll neither be barren nor unfruitful in your walk with God. And so a uh, door will be opened abundantly to you in the, the kingdom of God. You'll have great assurance if you see 
Jesus is making you into a brand new person. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, that progression is oftentimes a three steps forward, two steps back kind of samba in this world that we do. Uh, sometimes we will uh, stumble and fall. But even when we stumble and fall, we've got to ask ourselves this question. And this is, I think, the nub of it. People that continually struggle with a sense of assurance, do I really belong to God, are making a subtle but really deadly spiritual error. They are looking at themselves Mm. as the basis of their righteousness with God, their performance for God, uh, their emotions, and so on. If I do that, man, I have just punched my ticket on the uh, lifelong roller coaster because sometimes I do well in my walk with God and sometimes I don't. Sometimes I'm up, sometimes I'm down. But if I look at me, it's always going to be in flux, uh, just depending on how a day goes or how I feel or whether I caught the flu or something like that. It's hard yeah. to have uh, the Holy Spirit bearing witness with your spirit when you've got the stomach bug, you know, yeah. and just it kind of overwhelms you. But the, the bottom line, though, is this. When I look at Jesus, when I look at his promises, when I ask myself, is he faithful to his word? Can I take him at his word when he says that this is the work of God, that you believe in the one whom he has sent? If I put my faith and trust in him, I can know that I know that I know that I'm saved, mm-hmm. no matter what's going on in my life. So I think that's the nub of the issue. Anything you'd add to that? Nope. Yeah. Yeah. So how about... Um... I know when I first became a Christian, it may have been the church I went to, but there was an emphasis, probably an overemphasis on finding the will of God for your life and finding basically the task that God has for you and you need to find it and do that. And it was like a, I could say almost an overemphasis and a lot of stress that came with it. So what about in that sense? How do you know you're right with God as far as practically, like what, what you're doing, decisions, you know, this job, that job, this home, this marriage, da, da, da. Start with what he's written and work out from there. If we want to know what does God want us to do at the bare bones, I'd say 1 Thessalonians was about as subtle as a brick to the head when it says, this is the will of God for you, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, but not to possess your vessel and sanctify your body in sanctification and honor, not like the Gentiles who do not know God. Then the next chapter, 1 Thessalonians 5, 4 was where I started. Uh, It continues by saying, uh, pray without ceasing in everything, give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Mm. If that characterizes your life and you still don't find a calling or something specific to be doing, I'd say your time isn't being wasted any either way. Right. And note as well, if we make mistakes in life, God's able to pick up the pieces, but it's no reason to kick yourself or said, oh, if I had only discerned the will of God for my life properly. Right. Look, when it comes to what God has for us, there's a level of accountability that comes with it, meaning that we're called to make decisions, not that we're just supposed to default to God, that he holds our hand every step of the way. Mm -hmm. Knowing that he will see us through times of hardship is important, but also knowing that he's the reason why we are enjoying times of plenty. If we let God not just equip, but inform us enough to say, you know what, I think I can discern what God wants me to do in this circumstance as far as the things that aren't mentioned in Scripture, say, you know, what I'm going to eat or who I'm going to date or these other things. You're not going to find your spouse's name written in the Bible unless their parents are really specific on names, and even then that's kind of edgy. If on the other hand you take a step back, fair point. Yeah. Fair point. <laughs> yeah. But if on the other hand you're going to say, okay, what does God want me to do bare bones? Start First Thessalonians 4 and 5. Anything that informs your life from there, if it's consistent with God's character and it ultimately enables you to model it more, 
I don't think he's going to judge you down for that. But it should be, and this ties into some of the questions we'll probably answer before we sign out, asking, okay, whatever I'm doing in word or deed, does it bring glory to God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ? If that can be stated as a yes, then you can say whether it's a mistake or not. Now note, fallen sinful human beings, of which I am one, we oftentimes make mistakes on purpose. And we have to live with that. Right. But if on the other hand, we make good mistake or good mistakes, we make good decisions, we discern <laughs> it wouldn't be a mistake because it has that goal in mind. If you want to know God's will, know God's character, and then live accordingly. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I, you know, to me, I, I think one of the most helpful passages as far as trying to GPS my way through life yeah. down through time has been Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. I mean, mm-hmm. it's real basic, but uh, really powerful when we put it into practice. Mm-hmm. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Now, notice that's a conditional promise of God. He mm. will make your path straight. Mm. In the shortest distance between two points, A to B, but there's certain things we've got to do first. And, mm. you know, over the years, because it's been helpful to people, I came up with an acrostic, and I said, you know, what you need to remember, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, is the acrostic guide, G-U-I-D-E. First, um, give your heart to God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Uh, that's that's the first place. If, if God's got your heart, then he can take the rest of you and put you wherever you need to be. Um, you know, again, give your heart to God. Uh, the U stands for understand related scriptures. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Okay, whose understanding am I going to lean on? Am I going to get together a focus group? Am I going to, you know, do a poll? No, uh, you know, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Understand related scriptures about the decision that you're making. Uh, you know, people say, well, you know, I'm not a you know, Bible junkie. I don't know, you know, we're going to find these scriptures that tell me what to do in this situation. Well, you know, we, we call it often the Proverbs challenge. Um, just open the book of Proverbs halfway through and start reading. And uh, the Proverbs challenge is this. If you, in, within five minutes, Don't find at least one or two proverbs that directly apply to your circumstance. You can have your money back, you know. I mean, but (laughs) but to me, uh, you know, it's not a lack of knowledge that I find when I read the proverbs. Sometimes it's too specific for my tastes, and you know, I I can't get my own will into that. Mm -hmm. You know, know, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. Okay. In, In other words. Don't have an on-off switch in your walk with God. Don't think God just speaks to you in church. Don't just think that God has a will for you when you're doing uh, uh, sacred things. He wants to be Lord over all your life. And uh, the best way for him to be Lord over all your life is to start each day and just saying, Lord, here I am. You know, I want to give myself to you as best as I know how. Let me walk hand in hand with you today. You know, uh, again, the I uh, stands for uh, invest today in walking with God, Mm -hmm. maybe uh, that decision that you have is going to be, re, uh, you know, resolved in the in the future. But don't wait on that particular decision to come in before you get serious uh, about making the most of this day. We don't even know if we have a tomorrow. Right. So uh, again, devote yourself to the Lord. And finally, the E stands for expect guidance. So give your heart to God. Understand related scriptures. Invest today walking with God. Mm-hmm. Devote yourself to a near relationship with him, and then the E is expect guidance, mm. because God is very good about getting us where we need to go, sometimes kicking and screaming, but he will get us where <laughs> we need to go. Yes. Yeah. I can attest to that. Yeah. yeah that's great. Guide. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Well, awesome question, Taylor. Um, 
I hope that helps you out. I mean, spiritually and practically, and for all of us uh, who are watching, um, that's uh, that's our desire to walk with the Lord and to please Him. So, Taylor, thank you for sparking off that discussion. A uh, question here from Victor. He says he is the son of a hyper Calvinist, um, and they, his parents say everything is part of God's plan. If he steps on a piece of gum, if he has a job, if he doesn't have a job, um, if if he dies and goes to hell. It's all part of God's plan. How can he uh, share with them that is, this isn't true? And is, is that indeed true or not? So Calvinism is a huge, uh, obviously, discussion. And- well, and you emphasize hyper-Calvinism. And again, full empathy, I suppose, to you. When you're dealing with parents that would really emphasize a secondary doctrine like this, I'm sure it leads to some odd conversations. I think the best way to maintain respect for your parents, but at the same time to have a love for the truth, isn't just to ask questions, but to listen to answers and to check those answers out according to an authority, hopefully your parents all acknowledge. Now, both acknowledge, I suppose. Now, when we're talking about the issue of hyper-Calvinism, we're not just talking about someone who believes that God is God. We would both agree on that, that yeah, God is true. sovereign, <laughs> that God has a purpose and a plan for our lives, that nothing violates his will, you know, yeah. as straightforward as can be, who has uh, thwarted the mind of God, how who has resisted his will. They're all affirming things that we would wholeheartedly agree with, but of course, at the same time, the issue isn't in what they affirm, the issue is in what they deny. If they're of the hyper-Calvinist sort, and you may have to clarify a few things for us, where it gets weird there's no other way to put it, (laughs) is when people take this emphasis on the sovereignty of God, which again, I will say for the second time, and I will probably say it at least four more times before this five-minute answer is done, is what? True. We don't disagree that God is sovereign. To then infer, and notice how this is the source of a lot of mistakes, that because of the sovereignty of God, which we agree on, Therefore, there is no human responsibility. There is no human accountability. There is no judgment apart from what God has already ordained for you. And therefore, and this is what's key, the idea that what we call double predestination, that God has not only decided in advance who is going to heaven and who is going to hell, are emphasizing things not from Scripture, but from an inference emphasizing a portion of God's revelation of himself through Scripture at the expense of others. I know that's a lot of words, but let me just say it again, hopefully in simple terms. They're emphasizing not what Scripture states, but making inferences, coming to conclusions off of what parts of Scripture state at the expense of others. Now, this is where the questions become important, and the questions could be as simple as, does it say that? You make the point and say, okay, so God, God's will for your life was to have you lose that job or step on that piece of gum or whatever, yeah. anything in between. Yeah. We're talking about a situation where someone's not saying Scripture, they're saying things that line up with passages from Scripture. And note, is that the full counsel of God's Word, or is that a conclusion made on your emphasis of God's Word? Because no, we're both you and I are in favor of people looking at their life through the lens of Scripture. Both hands up, right? Yeah, no problem with that. But if on the other hand, we take two steps back and go, okay, 
since gum, <laughs> since unemployment, as it pertains to me, since these sort of issues and heartaches aren't mentioned in Scripture, am I accurately representing the character of God in that he would not only, this is where the issue is, allow these things to take place, but cause these things to take place? Does sovereignty mean that God knows what evil to allow and what to prevent, or does it mean that anything that is caused or occurred is the direct intervention of God, that we have no will or purpose, we're all literally just automatons filling out programming. And this is where you have to be careful. The hyper, notice, not Calvinist position, not even a bent-toward-sovereignty position, a hyper-Calvinist position needs to be corrected because it is saying things that Scripture doesn't say. And you have to take it on a case-by-case basis, but issues like double predestination, issues like the total absence of mankind's accountability, which, again, for the third time, not all Calvinists affirm, hyper-Calvinist, that's why we're being broad in our terms, Calvinists would affirm in Scripture, God is sovereign. Do we agree with that? Yes. But do we clarify in light of the rest of Scripture that there are things that God will hold us to be accountable for? things that we made or chose to do, here's that word, chose to do, apart from the character of God and that we will be judged for. This is the point of emphasis that we need to clarify with people, and we can do this simply through asking questions. And the questions should be informed, not just by the other stat, which we'll get into here in a second, but also through what they themselves are reporting. If they make the claim, say, you know, that, that's a really interesting thing, and I want an accurate view of God. Where is that in Scripture? And they'll usually point you to Romans 9 or, you know, uh, the Gospel of John chapter 15, I believe. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, 15, 16, yeah. yeah. But going into all these space and principles, but what about the other stat? Yes, the Bible does, which we agree on, <laughs> that God is sovereign, does purport that, but does it also note that we have a will, that our decisions matter, that there is, in fact, something to be answered for apart from the will of God in our lives? Have we been given that dignity? Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the fact of the matter is a uh, reading of the whole counsel of God is going to lead you to places where uh, you're going to have to, in a sense, um, fold, spindle, and mutilate a few scriptures to get uh, the, the Bible to fit into, say, a hyper-Calvinistic position. Mm-hmm. I can think of one right off the bat, John 3.16, mm-hmm. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Mm -hmm. Now, I've run into Calvinists who say, well, no, that means the elect. It's not what that passage said. Mm -hmm. I I can tell you in the Greek, whosoever does not mean the elect. It has never translated the elect in any other passage of scripture. It means what it says and says what it means. So, you know, when someone says, well, you know, but that's a problem because if God is really sovereign, then people have a choice. And if they can say yes or no to God, they can thwart God's will. Well, that's a very narrow view of God's sovereignty. I think it was Robert Furrow who put it this way at a pastor's conference. I loved it. He goes, my God's so sovereign, his sovereignty even allows us to have free will. Mm. And he's going to work all things out according to his 
his uh, glorious predetermined plan, but that predetermined plan also includes human beings entering into a love relationship with him that's real, that's genuine. Mm. And a love relationship uh, that is not based on free will and free choice is coercion. It's not real love. So, you know, you you look at that. You look at um, passages that, um, you know, when someone says, you know, well, you know, God's sovereign. If R.C. Sproul, the famous theologian, said he's not in charge and directing every molecule in the universe, he's not sovereign. Well, that is a philosophical statement. That's not necessarily a scriptural statement at a particular point in time. Let me give you an example uh, that kind of befuddles people. Jeremiah comes to King Zedekiah and says to him, look, if you surrender, open the gates to the Babylonians, you and your family will be spared and the city will not be destroyed. Mm-hmm. Um, Zedekiah goes, oh, well, you know, I, I just, uh, you know, it's a great offer, but... I just don't know if I can do that because some of my people have already gone over to the Babylonians. And if I let them in the gates, then they're going to mock me and, you know, maybe do me harm. Jeremiah's like, no, no, no. God is going to take complete care of you and your family. Well, Zedekiah had a choice. Now, the question we got to ask is, was God just woofing to the prophet Jeremiah? Was he just playing mind games with Zedekiah. Oh, I already know he's not going to say no, but I'm going to throw this out there anyway just to, you know, blow people's minds someday. That was a legitimate offer with legitimate uh, consequences. Did Zedekiah uh, obey God's voice? No, he did not. He kept the walls shut, and just what Jeremiah predicted happened. The Babylonians broke through, uh, destroyed the temple, burned down the city. Zedekiah was hauled off into captivity and never saw Israel again. So, you know, the, the bottom line is you had a fork in the road. A legitimate choice was presented before this guy, Zedekiah. He could say yes or no to one of two destinies, if you will. And there is nothing in that passage of Scripture that indicates this was a hypothetical. Nothing in this passage of Scripture that indicates that God was just playing around with him. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, to get passages like this to fit into a construct like hyper-Calvinism uh, you really do have to do damage to the Scripture or to the very character of God, right. that God's just playing games with us. And uh, usually yeah. that's where it ends up. Uh, they will say things like, well, God's sovereign and you're not, and you just got, you know, don't you, who are you to criticize God? Hmm. Well, I'm not criticizing point, God. <laughs> I, I'm criticizing your view of God who, for instance, and, you know, I see people say this, uh, that God has predestined some for hell yeah, and that you need to rejoice that you've been predestined for hell because even as you go to hell, you'll be glorifying God. Mm. What? <laughs> Where does this fit in with this Jesus who said, I've come to seek and save that which was lost? Yeah. You know, and note, not so, the Calvinist position, the hyper-Calvinist position. We need right. to emphasize that. Yeah, and, and we, we really want to be careful to not uh, build up a straw man and tear it down. Uh, but ultimately, here's the deal, and this is one thing I really love about hanging out in Calvary Chapel circles, is this. Um, you know, people say, are you Calvinists or are you Arminians? The opposite of Calvinism, if you will, that emphasizes man's free will. No. At the expense of God's character. No, we're, we're Calvinians, I guess you could say, because you know we agree with what Calvinism affirms. 
but we don't agree with what it denies. Mm. We agree with what Arminianism affirms, but we don't agree in what it, with, what it denies. And this is what I mean by that. Uh, we agree that God is sovereign, that he is in control of all things. You know, you know he's spoken, and will he not do it? Uh, you know, will he not do everything that he's, he's faithful, he's holy, he's true? He never goes, oops, he never changes his mind, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, God's intention is always our good and our blessing. He loves us, and nothing is going to change all of that. So we agree with that proposition, but we don't agree with the proposition saying that because he's sovereign, there's no such thing as free will and free choice because the Bible teaches it. Yeah. On the same side of the coin, we don't uh, disagree with the Arminian who says, boy, we've got a decision to make as far as our relationship with God and our decision really matters. Mm. Yeah, we would agree 100% with that. But we don't agree that this somehow diminishes God or makes God beholding to us as his creatures. You know, the, the, the problem is, instead of just teaching God's word and letting it speak, we fall into the trap, I believe, of kind of trying to come up with a philosophical construct that puts these things together in our heads. Right. And I would just, uh, I've shared this before, I remember my third year in seminary, I was taking one of my final theology classes where you're really getting into the, the heavy duty stuff. We're talking about predestination and free will. And I asked my professor after the class, I said, how do you reconcile those two things? This guy had been teaching theology for 40 years, said, Scott, if the tension ever goes out of that issue for you, it means the spring is broken. Mm. So we don't want to overemphasize one scriptural doctrine to another. That's why we teach the full counsel of God's word. We teach the Bible from Genesis through Revelation because there you get a balance yep. of these things. Sometimes when we're teaching, we'll sound like, full-blown Calvinists, because the passage is emphasizing the sovereignty of God. Mm. Sometimes we'll sound like we're full-blown Arminians because we're emphasizing man's responsibility, because that's what the passage says. So, you know, do you, I just don't even like to even slap a label on it, because as soon as you do, we're like, well, we're, you know, you're that and you're this and, yeah. and all this. You know, let's just let the Bible speak. Let's not read into it. Let's mm. read out of it. Not that you can't use theological constructs as a tool to help you get to the bottom of some of the truth of God's word. I think that's that's an excellent pursuit. We don't wanna be anti-intellectual. God's given us a mind, he'd like us to use it. But on the other side of the coin, I can't get so wedded to a particular theological construct like Calvinism or Arminianism that I find myself looking at a passage, uh, you know, like, uh, John chapter 15 that you mentioned, you know, that he's the vine, we're the branches. The one who abides in him bears much fruit. The one who doesn't abide in him he withers as a branch, is uh, cast off and is burned. Um, what do I do with that? Well, I don't want to put my fingers in there and go, la, 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 la. I don't like this passage. Next. You know, I have to take it the way Jesus meant it. And I can't do a soft shoe dance around even those passages that are really challenging maybe I don't like personally, I wish they weren't there uh, in my own intellect, but I realize God's ways are higher than my ways. Mm -hmm. If Jesus said it and he met it, I need to take it seriously. Yeah. So going back to your parents, again, ask good questions, be respectful, understand that in a hyper position, you're obviously going to be leaving some issues, some important issues behind. Know both sides of the issue and understand our argument isn't that truth is found in the middle of two extremes. That's not what we're emphasizing at all. Some truths are, in fact, extreme. But when we ask the question, 
what does Scripture teach? The conclusions that are come to come from an overemphasis in the worldview at the expense of Scripture, and we don't want to do that. So make sure that when you're doing these things, uh, take advantage of the opportunity. You uh, got your uh, polemical side from answering difficult questions from your own family members. I got it from being baptized in the modern-day adage of the Internet. It is something that God can use later on. But the point needs to be made. Understand that your parents understand that you are to be respectful and you're challenging of those worldviews, but that even they also submit to God and his word, which you should be doing as well. Yeah, very good. Thank you, Victor, for that question. We do hope that helps you out ministering to your parents. A <clears throat> uh, question here from Albert. Is there any indication that Paul's thorn in the flesh was some type of addiction or spiritual attack? He's heard that taught. Do we know what the Paul's thorn in the flesh was. There's more evidence that it was a physical handicap than anything else, and the place people oftentimes go for that is in the book of Galatians. But uh, let's just start in the passage you're referencing in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I believe. Yeah. Uh, he mentions a, th- a messenger from Satan. Yeah, a thorn let, let me read it. Yeah. It says in verse 7, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said, my grace is sufficient for you. Therefore, my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, that word emphasized again, in reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. It was an infirmity of some kind, right? Yeah, and the book of Galatians mentions on several occasions that if you know you thought that I had need, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. This is uh, suggesting that Paul had weak or some sort of injury pertaining to the eyes. Or some I, infection. Boy, if you've had an eye infection, you know how painful that is. Yeah, and yeah. again, there's been people well-intended who have done studies on this and suggested maybe there was some long-term consequence to his interaction with the Lord on the road to Damascus when he was blinded by the Lord. I, again, we're, we're shaking our heads a little bit and saying maybe not, but we do know that God allowed this, quote, infirmity, which is a term used to describe physical handicaps. And he also goes on to describe circumstantial inconveniences, social violence, literally. All of these things are physical. So if we're to read into the text, maybe Paul struggled with depression. Well, I'm sure he did, but I don't think that's what he was referring to. Uh, Oh, well, Paul had a spiritual enemy. Well, he does use a messenger from Satan in the text, but notice how he applies that. It doesn't say that he was possessed. It doesn't go on to justify, nor does the rest of Scripture justify that kind of reading. It says that in infirmities, I'll rejoice that Christ is allowing this weakness, his power is made more manifest. So, and again, I've uh, attended counseling sessions where that idea has been suggested, not as a point of doctrine, but understanding God allowing you to have some sort of weakness only shows his strength all the more in your right. life. He wasn't telling me, Paul had a mental disorder. And he's saying, look, see your mental disorder the same way Paul understood his infirmity. Do you use it for the glory of God or the pity of yourself? And this is the point that we should probably take from it. And to the best of hope, that's probably what the teachers you were hearing from were trying to get you to take away from it as well. But no, uh, I don't think it's appropriate, given the text, that it was a 
mental disorder or some sort of spiritual malady. Yeah, you know, in fact, the uh, the uh, term thorn in the flesh, mm-hmm. you know, who'd want to have a thorn in your eye? I, I remember getting a little tiny piece of fishing line in my eye once, and I mm-hmm. didn't realize it was there until I was just bent over in pain. A uh, little thing like that can really mess you up. But yeah. the word that Paul uses there can literally be translated tent stake. Yeah. And remember, he was a tent maker. Well, so he was very, very aware of what he was talking about, the, the, the metaphor, if you will, to describe the pain that he was in. Mm-hmm. And if you've ever had uh, that kind of, uh, you know, eye inflammation or some kind of, you know, scratched cornea, uh, you know that it's just, it's like an overwhelming kind of a pain. It's not something you just go, well, I'm going to go about my day and just right. wink at people. You're like, you know, you know, let, let's, let's do that. When I had the uh, fishing line in my eye, uh, the, uh, they were looking, they gave me an anesthetic for my eye, uh, so they could look around in it. And the nurse went, uh, this is kind of good news and bad news. The good news is, uh, you're going to feel a lot of relief for like five minutes, but then it's going to come back. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I mean, it was just that contrast. They put that drama. I was like, Oh my goodness. And mm. then bam, it came back so quickly. It was just mm. unbelievable. So, You know, when Paul talks about that, I think he talked about the fact that God allowed these things, just as you said, as an opportunity for him to be able to trust him. I love what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 6. He says, uh, we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so we despaired even of life. Sounds pretty depressed. Yes, we had the sense of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, and in whom we also trust he will still deliver us, you also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many people on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. So what Paul was saying is, man, we were in a situation we didn't even think we were going to live. But in that situation where we didn't think we were going to live, well, we learned what it means to trust in God who raises the dead. You know, I just think about the, the journey we went through with cancer a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. you know, sitting across the desk from an uh, oncologist saying, yeah, you know, we don't do something about this. You're going to die a horrible death within five years. Yeah. And I'm like, what? I eat kale. I run every day. I, you know, you got the wrong person. But, you know, it's an overwhelming thing to come face to face with that. But the, the, the bottom line uh, lesson that we learned in all this, not just me, but you, Sean, and the rest of the family was, Man, well, where else are we going to go right. now? We got to throw ourselves in the hands of God. Yeah. And God sovereignly moved, got us the kind of treatment that we needed. And man, I just look back on that and it's such a beautiful example because I was like, Lord, if you could handle the biggies, yeah. right? Then anything else that's coming my way that's freaking me out, small potatoes in comparison. But you only learn that, don't you, by going through it. Unfortunately. Yeah. 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 Great. Well, uh, but thank you for that question. Hope that helps you out. Got just a couple of minutes, so uh, literally real quick. A question from Henry the Scientist. Not a Bible question. Well, I mean, it, it can be. He's asking. Um, he's saying we're finding so much about the universe and outer space. Is it possible that there is life out there? Does the Bible talk about extraterrestrial or other no. planets? It, it's, and... it's silent on the subject. Um, you know, again, as a uh, kid who grew up watching Star Trek and just sort of assumed there was a. United Federation of Planets and first contact was right around the corner. We just sort of uh, assume that that is something that is going to happen sooner or later. And uh, the the underlying philosophy behind that is life isn't special. Yeah. Mm. You know, that given enough time, 
you know, the uh, the raw materials in the universe, the uh, the unthinking energies of the universe. Throw in enough time, sooner or later, life must emerge. And because we've emerged, and somehow through a series of fortuitous uh, collocations of atoms, we have a, a brain that can think about these things uh, that must have happened in other places. Right. But the, the more we go on, we discover a couple of things. And believe me, this is coming from someone who's an astronomy buff and you know loves uh, looking at things in a backyard telescope and all of this. Um, first of all, we discover something. Our planet is incredibly balanced and, and uh, fine-tuned for life. As mm-hmm. a matter of fact, the whole universe is fine-tuned in such a way that life would be possible on our planet. Um, you know, physicists tell us that uh, if, uh, you know, again, the, uh, the uh, amount of gravity in the universe was altered uh, and the gravitational force were altered, even just by the smallest percentage, life would never be able to exist. We live in what's called the Goldilocks zone mm. as far as the planet Earth is concerned. Not too hot, not too cold. We look at other planets, even like Mars, which is very similar to Earth. And man, it's a brutal place, bombarded by radiation every day a thin atmosphere uh you know the possibility of growing you know the the more we look around the universe venus our our twin sister in the solar system you know this uh incredibly dense atmosphere that uh, causes the surface of the planet uh to be so hot it's hotter than than melting lead yeah so you know we we see that we are a very privileged planet bible simply is silent on whether life exists anywhere else but it's very doubtful Right. Well, thank you. Thanks for joining us today. Great show, great question. Sorry if we didn't get your question. Join us again tomorrow, same time, same place, and restate your question or we'll get to those leftover ones. God bless you. Have a great evening. See you tomorrow. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.